Hi, I'm Jim Shockey, and you're listening to Outdoor Adventures with Jason Podcast. Welcome to Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Each week, I bring the world of hunting, fishing, and conservation to you. From the great hunting and fishing opportunities found in the Americas to the dream safaris located on the dark continent beyond. I'll introduce you to those who are already out in the field living every outdoor enthusiast's dream, as well as outfitters and gear manufacturers that can make those dreams your reality. Top 10% Deer Management is the premier land management company to help you see better deer on your property. Whether you have 10 acres or 10,000 acres, let a top 10% representative begin to help increase the correct deer habitat on your property. Go to top10percentdeermanagement.com for an introduction. Top 10% Deer Management. Manage. Hunt. Harvest a family-owned business. Buck Fever Synthetics, the premier attractant company, making not only the finest whitetail synthetic attractants, but also scents for elk, moose, bear, and hog hunters. Use with Buck Fever's Vanishing Hunter to reduce your scent and see the difference. Put out Buck Fever year-round to have the animals coming in. It crystallizes in dry soil and reactivates with moisture and it never spoils. It simply works. Go to buckfeverusa.com to see the full line of Buck Fever Synthetics. Make bucks hunt you. Proudly made in America. DTO Optics wants to be your optics provider. They offer rugged and dependable rifle scopes, binoculars, spotting scopes, and rangefinder options. You'll find big name quality optics at little name prices. DTO Optics is your value-based optics company providing awesome customer service, a 30-day love it or your money back guarantee, and a lifetime warranty. Check out DTO Optics online at dtooptics.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Racks, offering the coolest bow hanger on the market. Display your bow with pride in your house, your garage, or anywhere you'd like. We carry most major brands while also offering a custom service if you have an idea or logo of your own that you'd like made into a hanger. Use them to display your traditional bow, compound bow, or even your crossbow. They also work great for hanging your hunting gear, your bags, or hats. Not to mention the design just looks plain awesome all by themselves. A Racks hanger makes for a great gift for that special hunter in your life. Go to RacksInc.com to see some of the available designs or contact us to discuss the custom hanger of your own. For listeners of the Outdoor Adventures with Jason podcast, use the promo code PODCAST and get 15% off your first order. Racks, show off your passion. Tall Tines Taxidermy is your mid-Michigan taxidermist, conveniently located in Clarksville, Michigan. Lanny specializes in white-tailed deer and any other big-game animals you harvest. As a boutique taxidermy studio, you know who's doing your taxidermy work. Let Lanny Ross, owner of Tall Tines Taxidermy Studio, show you why his motto, Preserving Memories, produces one-of-a-kind works of art for you. Reach Tall Tines Taxidermy at 616-723-7970. Welcome to this episode of Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Today I'm excited. I have Brittany Longoria on it. And Brittany is a conservationist, philanthropist, hunting advocate, adventurer. You can see a lot of her great trips and travels and work on both her Instagram page as well as through some of the other work that she's involved with. And I want to welcome you to the show, Britt. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you so much. Again, for the listeners, Britt, what what was that? Probably a 17-hour, 20-hour flight you've been on? (laughs) Yes. We just got back from the United Arab Emirates hunting over there. And because so few actually, and honestly, that never even occurred to me as a hunting destination, 
Uh, how was that? What were you hunting there? We were hunting sand gazelle, Arabian oryx, and Arabian mountain gazelle. Wow. And how was it? Did you feel safe? Absolutely. You, I mean, we flew on Emirates into Dubai, and then it was about a, geez, probably a little bit under two-hour drive out into the desert outside of Dubai. Okay, because I can see a couple of your pictures that you've posted on, on Instagram, and it's absolutely just stunning landscape behind you and, and the animal that you harvested that you've shown on Instagram. Yes, and, and as you said, it's, it's very safe, very friendly towards Westerners. Dubai, uh, as a woman, you don't need to cover your head. You would like to be kind of more on the conservative side, but as far as hunting goes, it's completely foreign. It's completely exotic. You're hunting in the sand dunes, in the desert, just exactly what you would imagine it to be like. It's neat to hear that as you see people travel and counter other other cultures, other people. What a great trip. Absolutely. And it, like I said, very safe, very friendly. Accommodations were beautiful. Staff was very friendly as well. So now for people that might not be familiar with your, whether it be Instagram page or some of the work you've done, give us a little background on yourself, if you would. You've kind of really had an amazing life, all the experiences you've encountered. Absolutely. Very, very blessed. I grew up on the southern coast of Maine. As a young teenager, I would travel to South Africa to work for hunting companies specifically Nooms on Safaris out of South Africa. And then in university, I decided to continue on in South Africa, went to school in Pretoria. And by living in Africa, I was able to really get firsthand experience of the safari industry, the ecotourism, photographic industry, game capture, um, high-end lodges to gritty overland <laughs> type safaris travel a lot and do a lot of hunting as well. And that's one of the things I, I really wanted to talk about is we see so much come out of the, whether it be the American or foreign press or just the social media channels about anti-hunting. And I remember, oh, maybe a year, year and a half ago, there was a study released about, example, elephants and the economic value say one elephant had to a photographic safari versus say a hunting safari and then they tried to equate that to every elephant in Africa and I said well wait a minute not every African elephant is in Kruger National Park where everybody's going to go there's many that are in areas that tourists aren't going to go and you can't equate that same photographic value to them. Absolutely. It definitely is a, is a continent that needs a balance of both ecotourism and photographic dollars, as well as sustainable use, such as hunting. The only time I've been to Africa, my first safari was in southern Zimbabwe. And I'm fairly certain that you were going to see very little in photographic safaris there compared to, say, South Africa, which is thought of as a probably a a safer area to go to than, say, a Zimbabwe or, you know, again, I'm doing some guessing here because I've not been to, say, a Botswana and, and things, but I can't just see where they can impute that African elephant value for Kruger National Park elephant and carry it across every every African elephant that lives in, in sub-Saharan Africa. No, for sure, for sure. And another thing that people get caught up on is the, is the terminology of something being endangered or threatened. And for instance, I hunted leopard in Namibia, and people said, well, that's an endangered species. How can you hunt something like that? People don't understand the, the categor categorizing of the different populations, that you have very, very strict 
scientific data based on different areas so that the population studies based on areas then translates into the number of hunting permits. So there might be an area where, for instance, as we're talking about elephants, that it doesn't make sense to have elephant permits. But then in other areas, such as hunting areas that aren't conducive to photographic safaris, you would have it. So people get, like I said, caught up on the concept of something having endangered numbers, but don't look at isolated populations and also consider that it's a whole continent, not just one natural area. And a continent that's no longer just a big open travel zone for wildlife. It's a segmented Correct. place divided by countries, borders, fences, farms, Absolutely. everything that, that's not conducive to wildlife. And that's the greatest threat is that everything's getting chopped up and habitat aren't linked anymore. Conservation, transfrontier conservation areas are being divided. That Really, it, it comes down to habitat that's the greatest threat for all wildlife. So you were in college in South Africa, and as you did that college and, and gained your exposure, when did you come back stateside? What brought you? About 10 years ago, I moved back um, to get my master's degree at the University of Denver. And so I came back, and now I'm in Texas and have been in Texas for about 10 years. Okay. You're in the Hill Country area of Texas, which is a game-rich, wonderful area not only to live but to hunt. Absolutely. You have started a business there, and it's pretty interesting what you're doing. Uh, it's called Rock Environmental LLC, and it really allows you to bring all of your experience from, say, college on, say, high school on, to helping organizations and, and different companies. I guess they're mostly organizations and not necessarily companies, but to work to embrace the outdoors. Correct. Um, what I do with Rock Environmental is work with international nonprofits developing more the business and back-end side of their programs and their passion. So an example, a, a local Texas example, is I work with Trinity Oaks, which is a nonprofit based out of San Antonio. Their mission is to provide hunting, fishing, and outdoor experiences essentially to people who cannot afford it. Um, we work with disabled folks, terminally ill people, underprivileged youth, veterans, first responders, anyone that could basically use the solace and gain some experience and some, some happiness and joy through outdoor activities. Interesting. And so in Trinity Oaks is a, a huge name in the southern Texas area. Most people that are involved in the outdoors will be familiar with Trinity Oaks. That's a, For example, you also worked with a place called Wild Horizons Wildlife Trust in Zimbabwe. Can you say a little bit about what you did there? Absolutely. They are a group that works in a very um, high ecotourism-centric area, and they are veterinarians that take in animals that were affected by poaching crisis. So if the animal is able to be saved, such as an orphaned elephant or something like that, they have a education center and an animal sanctuary where they utilize the animals to live in the most natural setting they can be, but as an educational tool working with, with children from different schools as well as, as tourist people. Interesting. Now, I'm not actually familiar with that, but is that in Bulawayo? No, it is over closer to Victoria Falls, over more towards Harare. 
Okay, because I had heard about something similar to that that was south, a little bit south of uh, Bulawayo that was an interesting facility. So uh, it's great to see that countries that you you don't necessarily consider as being, I, I guess in America, we're so isolated from everything else that I, I learned going to Africa. I learned enough about Africa to know I know nothing about Africa. <laughs> yeah, it's been huge. And each region is a completely different set of, of issues and problems and poaching and wildlife trafficking and bushmeat trade. So it's all very individualized. Right. And I think that's a huge issue. There is cattle grazing and, and the bushmeat that can really decimate a population of, of native wildlife. Absolutely. And, and you take a look at it and those folks are, are considered poachers, but it's completely sustenance. I mean, these people are trying to feed families and it comes down to an economic aspect that these people don't have jobs and they don't have, they don't have the space to be able to create a livelihood for their families. And so again, it kind of ties back into whether it's educational or employment, which obviously hunting has a, an incredible impact in these very rural and remote areas for the livelihood and education of people in regards to conservation and how they utilize their natural resources. I was surprised the ranch that I was on in, in Zimbabwe, the number of people that they had employed. Yes. Some of them crossed over and helped out on the hunting side when it was busy, but it was just everywhere we went were little settlements of the farm workers, and that didn't include the farm workers that were brought in from outside. And so it was very, very valuable operation to the economy of that southern part of Zimbabwe, and that was just one of five ranches that were put together in a conservancy. So it was really the major employments of that whole area was, was these ranches. Absolutely. And without them, there just wasn't the number of photographic people heading over from the states and Britain and, and these other places to sustain that. They, they would have been out of jobs. So, yeah, this is neat to look at the different clients that you work with and the plans you're developing. Absolutely. And, and as you're saying, with the amount of land that it takes, you're saying, I guess, five branches that created a conservancy for, for folk here in the states that that's basically like having five major ranches out west that say, okay, let's share this land and not have internal fencing. Let the animals move and manage it collectively. So you're creating this micro ecosystem that's supported, in this case, by hunting, where you might have maybe 15, 20 clients come through over the course of the season, support with the income that they're generating off of the land, and it gives the people incentive to keep that land wild versus making it, as we we're talking about, cattle grazing or slash and burn farming or something that's more agriculture and income producing. So it's kind of that, again, that conglomerative of working together to create habitat that incentivize hunting and keeping things wild. Whereas if it was a photographic area, you might have literally hundreds, if not thousands of people coming through there. So the impact and the association of non-consumptive photographic safaris is actually more impactful on the land than just having a handful of hunters come and utilize the property. Right. And this particular area of Zimbabwe, well, it was pretty to me as a hunter, and parts of it were prettier than other. It wasn't something that would be an awe-inspiring draw for photographers. It just wasn't that type of landscape. Mm -hmm. 
So it was many areas. It was interesting with where you live. Many areas reminded me of parts of the hill country. Absolutely. Uh, the Mopani to me looked like a live oak tree. And, you know, th- these areas look just like many, which is why I think that those animals have done so well in the hill country when they've been relocated. Yes, for sure. So we've got all this stuff you've tied up together and and yet you still do all these great hunts that you've been a part of. Now one thing I want to bring up and ask you about as as a as a woman hunter, when you look at the say the f- feedback that people give on the internet when it be anti-hunters and they're attacking somebody. I've noticed and and others have said the same to me that it seems like women that hunt seem to get attacked more than say a man with the same thing. If if you put a woman with a giraffe that she's harvested next and then you post a picture of a man with a giraffe that he's harvested, that woman is going to get attacked much more. Do you have any thoughts on that? Do you have any, any ideas why that happens that way? I think that it's a society aspect that Traditionally, hunting has been more of a a man's activity, just kind of culturally. But as you begin to see more and more women getting in the outdoors and stuff, I think it just kind of freaks people out that are on that that far, far side of animal rights that it's just a much easier target. And it's kind of a juxtaposition of what they would assume a hunter to look like. So it riles them up and triggers them that much more. Yeah, it's interesting. I was lucky enough to harvest a giraffe when I went to Zimbabwe. I put the picture out online, received very little negative feedback. Most people were just kind of like, wow. But then I see other hunters that have posted the same basic picture, maybe slightly posed different, and maybe that's the trigger, but they just, they get attacked dramatically. And I, I've just not understood that. I, I don't know if it's viewed as that they're an easier target because they're a woman or, or I, I don't know what the thought process is behind it. I'm not sure either. And it, it's really interesting when after I hunted my leopard, I got tons and tons of hate mail when my photo went viral. Um, it was actually, I never posted it. It was taken off of the Safari Club website and kind of illegally obtained by some trolls. We think that it came from South Africa and it just went wild in Hollywood and made Fox News and stuff like that. And it was it was one of the things that you look at the people that are making the comments and it's extremely hypocritical. You'll see that there'll be a celebrity with designer handbags made of calf leather and it's like, do you know where that came from? Do you know that that was a baby cow that you're wearing? And and it, it's just, there's just this huge disconnect of, of people being able to associate their own life and their own impact and the deaths that they cause, whether intentionally as a hunter or a farmer or rancher, or people that are more urban that just are consumers and don't understand that they're also causing deaths. I always kind of shake my head when somebody comes back and tells me that they're a vegan only. And I'm like, have you spent any time at a farm? Have you seen the amount of animals that, you know, are killed every year just by sustainable farming? Not on purpose. It just happens. And (laughs) so I'm like, hunting is putting the money back into the uh, preservation of these animals. And I think a misconception is maybe that they think we're just as, as hunters going out and shooting anything that moves. They really don't understand the process and what we're looking at and how to harvest an animal. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm always kind of confused by it. Well, one of the things that I found with starting my, my Instagram page this past January is that when I was getting attacked, everything 
was, even though it was personalized, it wasn't personal. People were sending death threats and wishing harm on my family and my son and different things like that that were just absurd. And after probably about a week of the continuous noise, I realized it wasn't about me as an individual. It was an attack on hunting, on hunters. It could, it could be anyone. It, it didn't have to be me in particular with leopard. And I realized that I needed to tell my story. Having worked so much in the conservation field, I had always been very private about my hunting because it's such a sensitive subject. You just don't talk about it or you're very cautious of who you share certain things with. And so I understood that I needed to tell the full story, that trophy photos or what I call field photos are, are just snapshots of a moment but they don't give you the whole connotation of why something's there, why you're there, how you got to this point. And very often we're holding up an animal or kind of doing the grip and grin classic smile and take a picture. But hunting is such more of a sacred process that it doesn't articulate what we do. And so I found when I talk more from the heart versus trying to rationalize what I do, it completely throws people off because when an anti hunter asks, or a non-hunter, just a general public, someone that's a good person just trying to figure out why. When I speak from my heart, it's more relatable rather than coming back and say, oh, well, it's, you know, it provides jobs and I eat the meat and here's all the kind of black and white facts and figures. But when I speak from my heart, it's maybe it's because I'm a woman, but it, it's able to be perceived more clearly. And I think that that is an aspect that we've, we've kind of lost in telling the hunting stories. Again, back to trophy photos and field photos, it's just a snapshot and the narrative has been taken over by people who aren't hunters. They're, they're the ones that are telling our story versus, you know, think of our ancestors or indigenous people sitting around a campfire relaying and talking about the sacredness and the respect for the animal and the timing of when you do something, when you don't do something. That was normal society. Now we have snapshots and we have hunting videos and stuff where it shows the kill shot and then the yelling and screaming and celebration but it doesn't necessarily show the patience and the time and the the times when you're not successful and the time when something's really hard and not easy and I think that that's a big thing that we need to do a better job with and, and like I said this is why I'm, I've tried to start my my Instagram page to be able to tell more of that story. That, that's one of the things I was going to comment on is for anybody listening, and I'll have a link in the show notes to uh, Britt's Instagram page, but it's just Britt Longoria. That's B-R-I-T-T-L-O-N-G-O-R-I-A. And what I like about this is not only are you sitting there l looking at this beautiful oryx that you just harvested, but there's the picture of, you know, you experiencing the desert in these in these four pictures in total, which tells more of a story than just, hey, here's a, me smiling holding my oryx. Right, and, and that oryx, actually, my husband hunted with a bow, but I wanted to take a photo with it because it was, I experienced the hunt as well. And it was such an important animal being that we raised Arabian oryx here in Texas. And we've traveled literally on the other side of the world to go and hunt the species in its natural land. And so just kind of the whole circle of, of the conservation story was, was really important to how I wanted to express this, this adventure, this hunt. Yeah, what a neat, like I said, neat set of pictures. And I, I can't wait 
wait to see more that may pop up on your Instagram. Your just your entire Instagram is filled with fantastic pictures, and you hunt. And I didn't know this until I was going through your Instagram for the last you know year or so, as looking at it. But you hunt quite a bit with a crossbow. Yeah. And a crossbow is near and dear to my heart. I love to hunt with them. Uh, how did you get into that? I had hunted with a bow previously, and honestly, I, I didn't really care for it personally. It was fine, as I said, my my husband's only a bow hunter, but I just felt more comfortable with a rifle. And then hunting more with him on with with archery type equipment and stuff, and kind of re I don't know, kind of developed more of an interest in it again, I guess, and felt that it was the like the perfect transition in between not wanting to shoot a bow and arrow, but also wanting to have more of a close-up and personal hunting experience. And the crossbow gave me that ability because I personally, when I shot a bow, I was pulling about 55 pounds as my, my maximum. But with a crossbow, it's the equivalent of shooting something with 150 pounds. So just the tremendous difference in energy and takedown power gave me more of the confidence that even if my shot was exactly where I was intending it to go, it would still have, like I said, the knockdown power and the, the lethalness of of shooting it. But like I said, having more of a closer experience with the animals and in, in the wild. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic, the pictures. I, when I went to Zimbabwe that time, I wanted to take my crossbow, but they weren't set up for any bow hunting, so I did mm, everything okay. with my rifle. But for anybody that's listening and has not looked at Britt's Instagram, you've harvested a kudu, at least one. I mean, you've got the picture, the the eland. Uh, there's so many. I, I give you credit because I shot my kudu. He took four or five shots to put him down. He's such a tough animal. Mm-hmm. So to do that with a crossbow, what an amazing feat! Absolutely. Now it it, it it is amazing, and that and that's what's really exciting and and unique about it is that it it gives you that that experience that is so much different than a rifle from afar. Even though you you can get very close with a rifle, it just forces you to it. You know, it it makes you get in within fifty or sixty yards um, comfortably to be able to take something with a crossbow all the props in the world for doing something like that. It's absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you. We- what an amazing hunt. Knowing from how I mine went to be able to get that close to do it with a crossbow, what an absolutely exhilarating time. Thank you. We we are going to go to Zambia and Uganda here um, in June and July, and I'm planning on hunting a Cape buffalo with a crossbow. So that will be a lot of fun. I've hunted buffalo with rifle um, several times, but... This will be, I think, even more exciting with a crossbow. So with all the places that you have hunted, Britt, what, now obviously United, to me, UAE would be pretty exotic. What's been the most exotic place you've been to to hunt? That's a hard one. Um, I would say probably one of my favorites was Benin in West Africa. It's one of those places where you just can't get to from here. I mean, it's a long flight over and then we drove for about 20 hours to get to the hunting concession, which was on the border between Benin and Burkina Faso. And it was just so wild. 
I mean, just in the, in the sense of true, real, wild, untouched, no fences, no, you know, stationary camp. There's no major roads. There, everything is just truly as you would read about in Capstick or Hemingway. Um, and then you would have this different diversity of, of wildlife and flora that is just fabulous. And so as a, a bird watcher and someone who enjoys learning about ethnobotany, it was completely new and different and exciting. And when you head into that part of West Africa, that's very dense jungles, isn't it? No, not necessarily. Um, that's probably you're thinking more of Central Africa, like more like Cameroon, C-A-R. This, this is more savanna, dry, kind of bushveld looking scrubby area. Um, you're, you're more, yeah, it's more kind of not grassland as in open savanna, but more um, grassy areas with kind of denser, shorter vegetation. Oh, okay. Shorter trees. And what what are the animals that you hunt up in that area? Um, I harvested a, an orby, a harness bushbuck, a western savanna buffalo. Let's see, there's also roan. So it's it's all kind of savanna type. Got it. Okay. Animal. Very neat. So that's probably this picture of this roan that I just found on your Instagram. Oh no, that's from Zambia. So yeah. They, <laughs> They mix all up, and it's like, I again, having not traveled to different areas, I'm not entirely sure what each zone is like. Now, one area you've gone to that may be very unique for folks is Pakistan. Yeah. That definitely is not a very few hunt that area. What was that like for you? Well, that was... That was one of those things as we, we kind of started with the, the concept of security and safety and did I feel comfortable and stuff like that. That was definitely one where I was hesitant. I mean, media makes out Pakistan to be quite a, a scary place. And I know my, my mom certainly had some heartburn with me going <laughs> over there. But but it, it, it truly wasn't that overwhelming. Um, my husband's Mexican and he says, you know what, this, this is safer than some of the places in Mexico. So we actually have two more two more hunts booked for the end of this year and the beginning of next year because it was so, so enjoyable. Um, it was, as far as topography, it was real rocky desert. It was really dry, but it wasn't so much a sand desert. And really kind of sparse acacia looking trees and bushes, kind of thorny stuff. And then, and that would be mostly in more of the river beds or in between the valleys of the mountains. And so what we were hunting there was thin ibex and uh, Blanford Uriel. So kind of a mountain goat sheep type um, species. Oh, interesting. Now, you, you've got more trips, I'm sorry, more trips planned to Pakistan? Yes, sir. We have um, one where we'll be going to the kind of the same area, kind of the, the high desert mountainous area. And then um, another trip that will be planned for um, see in January, and that will be more to kind of a jungly grassland area. And what's interesting about that was that we'll be hunting um, Nilgai, Axis deer, and blackbuck. So all very popular Texas species, exotic Texas species, but in, in their native habitat. Wow, that's fantastic. I was going to say they're all right out your back door for the most part. <laughs> I know. 
And what a fascinating trip. When you head back to Pakistan, are you looking at doing more Ibex or are you looking at the sheep or a little bit of everything? Um, it would probably be the the ibex and and the sheep as well. And then there's some small gazelle type species that we'll be looking for as well. And your husband, he'll be hunting as well? Yes, very much so. And do you bow hunt there too? Um, I am not going to be. He will be. Wow, that's not a small animal. To, that's amazing that he can bow hunt through all that territory. That's just unreal. He's a, he's an incredible bow hunter. Yeah, you'd have to be. If you're going on those kind of trips, <laughs> those outfitters are going to make sure that you want to hit what you can aim at. Yeah, no, I mean, he, he's just kind of general practicing at, at 100 yards just as a normal thing. And we have a, um, a creek on our, our property, so he'll set up targets up on a cliff and then shoot upwards and then climb up onto the top and then shoot downwards at other targets down below. Wow, that'll keep you in shape. Yeah. As we wrap all this up and look, for many people, including me myself, I am considered a disabled hunter. So there's a lot of adventures I live through talking with people like you and the stuff that you have experienced that I just physically will never be able to. For anybody that's like that that might be listening, I'd like to delve into a little bit more about getting in touch with Trinity Oaks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Trinity Oak is an incredible nonprofit. Like I said, we're we're based in San Antonio, but we're expanding throughout throughout the state, and we have what we're calling branches, um, which are essentially different chapters that help with local local communities. And one of the big things that we do is we have all of the adaptive equipment, and we have three properties in Texas. One is in Batesville, two thousand acres, some tack branch. We have uh, several acres in Port Mansfield right on the coast for bay fishing, and then a property in Seguin on a a river that's more of of a camping area. And through these different properties, we're able to work with anyone and everyone, regardless of physical limitations, because we have things like action track chairs, which are the kind of uh, wheelchairs that look like they're on tank tracks that can articulate over rough terrain or the the sip and puff um, shooting guns so that we can set up so if someone um, can't use their arms or don't have doesn't have limbs they can do the kind of a kind of a hose looking straw that they can suck in really hard and then that pulls the trigger on the rifle so we have lots of different adaptive gear Again, so that anyone who needs it or wants it is able to utilize it. Uh, Trinity Oaks works with over 50 other different organizations throughout the kind of the southern U.S. And so if there is another like-minded organization that would like to utilize some of the properties that Trinity Oaks has, again, it's 100% free of charge all of our participants and all of the different groups that utilize the property. And that's fantastic. And for anybody listening that either has somebody that may qualify, I would encourage you to go out to trinityoaks.org to look at the programs. But also, if you want to get involved, there's ways to go out and sponsor events, to make a donation. If you have a ranch in Texas or or any other area that might make a good fit, uh, please contact the folks at Trinity Oaks because it's a great uh, charity. It's a great organization and group of people to work with. And we have a bunch of events coming up that will be super fun this summer. We have an event at Joshua Creek Ranch in Bernie for Sporting Clays on June 8th. And then we have our big Under the Oaks Gala in San Antonio on August 10th. And that is big. And it makes all the news when that goes on. (laughs) 
<laughs> lots and lots of recognition of, of veterans and first responders and all of our volunteers. But then it's a fabulous evening of live music and auctions and entertainment. Well, fantastic. So, you know, I really appreciate the time you've given me today. I know you've had a long flights and everything and to get back stateside and not to mention catching up on all the stuff you need to catch up on. So I really appreciate your time, Britt. And I'm going to have links in the show notes for anybody listening to go to follow you on Instagram where they can really see what's kind of going on. And they can even see that first leopard picture if they're so inclined to scroll all the way down to the first picture you posted. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's a good one. <laughs> and the lovely stuff that was written across it. Yes. <laughs> so I think the storytelling you do, listening and learning about you, and anybody that wants to get involved with Trinity Oaks, they can contact Trinity Oaks, they can contact you, and you can put them in touch with the right people, I'm, I'm guessing. Absolutely. So, again, I thank you for your time. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You have a great afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Come early spring, it's getting green Fisher on the bed And hear those turkeys gobble It's raining in my head The winter rise bass boat Here comes another year Yeah, we command the outdoors around here Oh, we command the outdoors Yeah, we command the outdoors Come summertime, we're feeling fine Fishing on the lake Flipping jigs and Carolina rigs From early morning till real late Bonfires on the creek bank Kick back a couple beers yeah, we command the outdoors around here. Yeah, we command the outdoors. Yeah, we command the outdoors. Next year's does until you know winter's on the way. Brushing blinds and deer stands The fever starts to creep Fill our freezers full of ducks Lots of tender deer Yeah, we command the outdoors around here Yeah, we command the outdoors Yeah, we So grab your guns shells, boys Put on your camouflage Cause we command the outdoors around here We command the outdoors